0: The Digital Transition The Digital Transition A podcast series created to assist those tasked with implementing digital strategies where we will share our knowledge and experiences to support you in your transition. Welcome to the Digital Transition Podcast number 15. I'm your host, Nathan Hildebrandt, and today I have Don Cameron with me. Now, don't hassle Don about the title of this episode. It is all my doing. And uh, this podcast will have a slightly different approach to previous ones, when rather than actually being an an interview process, it's going to be a bit more of a discussion. And we're going to talk about the state of industry and uh, I guess both of our feelings about the approach of some of some people in the industry uh, trying to walk before they can crawl so uh, Don thanks for taking the time to come and visit me in my studio today Don Thanks Nathan. So before we begin our discussion or debate depending on where it, what it turns into we, we don't know where we're going to head today with this discussion purely because you know the idea of where this could turn out could could go anywhere so the listeners have a bit more of an understanding of your knowledge and I guess where your perspective may come from Don. Can you tell the listeners
1: a little bit about yourself? Yes, sure, Nathan. Thanks very much for having me. Really enjoyed your podcast and listening to them, so happy to more than happy to contribute to the ongoing debate. So the the unplugged version I think will go down pretty well, we'll have a, a really good discussion and lively debate amongst ourselves about what's going on in industry, et cetera. Um, so my background is uh, very varied, um, long history working with contractors for the last probably 20 years. Um, but always had an interest in the, the possibilities of using technology and digital technology. So I had a, a good strong background in in using CAD before it became BIM and re- saw the opportunities in the early days. I guess when I saw uh, the connection between uh, I used a piece of software that, that linked to a database, and uh, when I saw that, I started realizing the possibilities of you know the geometry and data together, and the ability to extract information for projects. You know, and ever since then I've try to pursue that. So on other projects, for example, using a, a database in the early days to, to map uh, accommodation requirements on projects. Um, so all of it, though, with a view to, to project managing, I guess, you know, helping deliver projects using technology and information and, and managing that information more effectively. So um, just really and worked on all sorts of projects, buildings, um, infrastructure projects, Big, small, but mainly the big stuff over the last probably 10, 10 or so years, which have been really interesting. It's a, it's a really a very different challenge that you see on those really large and complex projects.
0: Now you come at it from a contractor's perspective and also consultants as well. So you you, you bring the services engineer side and also the builder side of the fence. So I come from the architecture side, so I think we have the AEC component probably set right to actually have this discussion today, which is really good and important. As I kind of suggested a bit earlier, I don't know where this discussion will head. But let's kick this thing off. Now, I really want to kind of, guess, throw this idea out here because it's something that I've been thinking about the last couple of months um, since I've moved on from Fulton Trotter. And it's been through some, I guess, self-discovery and reflection. The thing that I think that's probably one of the biggest issues uh, within the industry, is the fact that I believe that a lot of the leaders that are at the bleeding edge uh, within our industry, you know, these guys all have strong, you know, guys and girls, I shouldn't say to say guys, um, have a strong knowledge in the potential benefits of BIM. But the problem is, I think that they're just pushing so hard for the bells and whistles rather than taking clients on a journey and doing it step by step. You know, my, that's my kind of, I guess, initial kind of starting point. Don, do you think that's the case as well?
1: Yeah, definitely, Nathan, and I think with, I'm actually reading a book at the moment it's really quite interesting about, uh, you know, it, I think this is a typical human challenge that we deal with you know, as technology or things change, and this this book I'm reading at the moment is around the fact that when when print or writing things down first came out back in Greek early Greek times is the resistance from people even like Plato were, were that this is ridiculous, It's going to corrupt people's minds, the fact that they have to write stuff down you can't trust them, you know, because it, it's some, You don't know that, you know. In the past, it was all reliant on the individual talking to someone else, and then everyone knew that they could trust that person because it was coming out of their mouth. Uh, and and following on that line of logic, all the way through to today, you know, where you say people are using, you know, technology to deliver information, it's, it's the same resistance that we're seeing from people where they say things have things have changed. This is not good for. For industry, or it's not good for people. It's 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 the same argument. Interestingly, that's that just keeps rearing its head. So, but I do agree with the point that maybe in a lot of cases the reason for that is that number one, people don't like change. Number two is they actually can't see how that might you know they they're nervous about how that might impact them, and they can't see how that necessarily plays out for the for the good of of what we do. One of the things I think
0: that's um, really interesting, and and the the couple of points that you raised on there that's worthwhile kind of delving into, and I guess it's probably a good reason why I guess my initial thoughts have kicked in as to why um, we're struggling to gain traction. You know, we're struggling to gain traction in industry because of a couple of reasons, you know, and, and when it comes to change, there's some great people out there that actually present on change management and they talk about fear. When, when people kind of get fear, they think that it's going to change their role. It's going to make them, you know, almost uh, their role redundant. They're going to have to learn a lot of things or it's going to add to their daily, their workflow. So, you know, first of all, I think the first problem might be is that by loading people too quickly with all this information, the change is too great. And the communication of the benefits are not clear enough and the benefits that are being communicated are actually probably – uh, from the from the mindset or the eyes of the person that's actually um, presenting the information rather than the eyes of the person that's actually the receiver. So a consultant's communicating the benefits that the consultant sees, which are more than aligned align with themselves, rather than the benefits that the individual that's actually the receiver of the information is actually going to be of interest to them maybe. Yep. And I guess my other concept <laughs> that uh, – that kind of I float around is uh, maybe um, the person sitting there and thinking, well, maybe I'm not paid well enough to actually learn to implement this new process and that's probably another challenge within
1: the industry itself. Yes, look, definitely. But touching on a couple of those points that you raised, they're all absolutely correct and I think it's it's often the case that the the spruikers or the, the strategic leaders of thought you know, often may not have the de- the de- devils and the details and that's why it's often dismissed by people at the rock face. You know, like if you just look at someone trying to deliver a project um, and there's many cases I've been in situations where organisations believe that the way to deliver this change is on a project and, and you can see – there's a there's a merit in, in thinking like it but the challenge when someone is suddenly faced with changing the way that they work they're under pressure to deliver uh, and then there's an expectation that miraculously they're gonna make this leap you know leap to the next technology or, or adapt and, and, and deliver over and above what they're doing I uh, I think it's yeah it's 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 part of I think the challenge of the modern world as well that it theres a a lot more complexity that we've got to deal with nowadays around delivery of projects. And if you if you even cost your mind back fifty years, I think that's one of the one of the lack of understandings in our industry is that if you look at buildings or, or other infrastructure, the complexity that's that's come into certainly from my experience anyway, it's it's significant now. It's a lot more systems involved, a lot more system integration. So not only do you have to design buildings that that work on a physical level, but on a very technical level too, there's a huge degree of complexity of inter, you know, inter, integrating equipment and and systems. Um, so I've obviously spent a bit of time on, recently on hospitals and and healthcare, and you see that firsthand. And the, the the team that was involved is is now you know five times bigger than it was with more specialists and and that's why I certainly see that the technology brings a great deal of value to being able to do all of, uh, you know, deliver those projects uh, if more effectively in terms of managing that information, that complex information and helping the teams deliver it.
0: You know, as I kind of talked about, I think the biggest problem and I guess one of my greatest reflections that I've kind of gained from from talking to people over the last couple of months um, has been in and around the concept of people that are strategic thinkers and the challenge of a strategic thinker communicating with one or a person or a group of people that actually aren't strategic thinkers. And the idea that a strategic thinker, much like in a game of chess, is thinking, you know, maybe 20 moves ahead when they're making a decision about how they're going to move forward. And the challenge is is that for the receiver of that information, for a person that can't see those 20 steps, the challenge is, is that they, they don't see the benefit in thinking that far ahead. Pieces of information that that need to be put forward by industry, the strategic minded industry members that are so uh, so aware of the benefits maybe the the answer is is not to try and force these twenty steps are going to solve um, an organization's problem in one go you know maybe it's actually you know what let's talk about your business's problems today, and you know what I've got a solution for one of them working through that one solution at a time and helping that business work through that one problem at a time and the one thing that I kind of look at is you know we currently have some great policy that's been re- released by the Queensland State Government here in Queensland. Uh, we have uh, VDAS down in New South, uh, sorry in Victoria and we have a number of agencies across the New South Wales Government that are all put out this implementation or or policies of some sort. My view is is that it's, it's good to have it but the problem is is that there needs to be some more palatable steps in the middle uh, so that essentially we don't get this kind of um, overwhelming outcome. So we've seen it here in Queensland. I, you know, we both talk to, to people within government agencies and a lot of them are essentially kind of almost in paralysis because they are feared by the whole concept of, well, you know, this policy means you're to deliver BIM for FM on projects and it's like automatically they kind of freak out. Yep. You know, it's if if only there was, you know, and I know that that government agencies are filling in implementation plans and stuff, either some by themselves or some with assistance from some consultants. But, uh, you know, I honestly believe that the first step actually should be, uh, you know, and this is an approach I think that should actually occur not only within the um, public sector with government but also within the private sector right now is actually – Taking a step away from all of this, right, and actually going, well, you know what? In the UK, they had BIM level one. Yep. And uh, right now, we're going from zero to one, or zero to two. Sorry, <laughs> in one step, you know. And I think that's the problem. We're pushing for BIM for FM without even stopping to think about the benefits to a client by by just having a consistent um, and structured um, numbering and naming format for their documentation, the idea of a common data environment or, you know, in in kind of more normalised terms for people, centralised data or centralised document management system. And, you know, all it is is a series of gates to kind of, you know, inform people that are accessing that information, the purpose of the document suitability or reliability. And I actually think that that would be a much more productive step for industry in terms of crawling uh, than jumping straight into, uh, you know, BIM for FM, please. Agree. Yeah.
1: I think um, Nathan, I mean, completely agree with you. I think there's this, this idea that we suddenly want to jump to BIM for phenomenon I mean, a lot of experts in industry really see, you know, th- this is where I think the digital twin pieces come about. That is a is a compelling proposition to asset owners. That uh, the idea of doing BIM is somehow connecting the, the the design and delivery phase with the, the operation phase. And because the operational phase is 80% of the value of the asset, that there's, this, so there's a financial imperative to doing this. So absolutely all that makes sense. But I think you're right. I mean, this is the problem where people are starting to run before they can walk even. I'm not aware of too many projects that have had successfully delivered, even BIM for FM or for that matter, even just delivering BIM, to LOD you know 300 or 400 i mean you know we could probably count on on one hand the the number of projects that have successfully done a proper you know that you could you know verify that they've done a proper LOD 400 delivery or LOD 500 you know so agree that i, you know, I think maybe we need to as an industry retract from that and just get the basics right and just relook at the information management on projects and go how do we do this better? How do we help the clients understand better what's required? How do we help the designers? How do we help the contractors? And, and keep it simple. Uh, and, and like you say, maybe it's a level one approach, um, It might make carry more weight and get more traction. I just, I just think that it might actually mean that the change becomes
0: more palatable. You know, like talking to uh, Chris Linning you know, a number of episodes ago about the approach from. Uh, the Sydney Opera House and how all of the facility management interfaces remained the same, you know, and all that he has done is added a platform over the top, which is one additional kind of workflow that kind of pushes and pulls data from all of these existing uh, workflows and methodologies. So if we look at that as a starting point and go, well, you know, you know, the one thing that really kind of I was actually interested in the most actually about um, BS 1192 and, and how they were potentially, you know, looking to adopt the processes out of that for the ISO standard, for me, was actually having a specified methodology for naming documents, you yep. know. Now, you imagine, you know, and, and this is probably going to be, you know, nearly impossible now, but you imagine having a consistent or standard in Australia that was based basically st- st- stipulated the naming structure of, or numbering, naming, numbering, whichever way you want to look at it, for documents in construction. Yeah. And it would be for for built assets, for, you know, um, vertical assets and, and linear assets. And just that as a starting point. Now, that's probably utopia in itself, right, because to actually try and come up with a standard that people would be happy happy to adopt. And that's why I kind of always thought to myself, you know, everyone's everyone you always talk to, it's better to have a standard that's kind of not 100%. Than no standard at all. Yeah, I nineteen six fifty in the UK has got a BS a, appendix to it, mm-hmm. so they've got their appendix where they would probably still include their original numbering strategy. But I honestly think that the approach should be is that we should take that as a starting point because you know we've we've did, a lot of the government agencies have decided with, on a classification system in terms of following UNI class two thousand fifteen. Yeah, so let's just take that. Let's just start that as a starting point.
1: It could be something as simple as that. I think, interestingly, we've all worked on projects and I think the issue isn't the fact that people don't give structured naming conventions to what they produce. It's just that everyone does it their own specific way and when someone else looks at it, it's often opaque to them. Yes. So... Fundamentally, what we're talking about is interoperability of information. You know, so how do we? Uh, so I certainly would agree. I know, for example, companies like Skanska have a very rigid model where every single drawing that, or information or specification that gets produced for them has to conform to a specific guideline, so that anyone in that organisation can look at it and go, I know exactly what that's all about. Um, so broadening that to the to industry, I think, is is critical to just enable that interoperability of information to occur. Um, and I think, you know, fundamentally that's what we're trying to talk about. Yeah. How do we work better t- together so we can do that? At least we know, okay, well, that naming convention or that structure of that information is something that I can readily adopt and I don't want to spend – I mean, and this is I think we're going back to earlier point about the challenges of trying to do this on a live project or in a live, live world situation is that you don't want to suddenly have to pick this up and spend a lot of time – trying to work out how this all looks and and then where's that information coming from a structural engineer what is that actually which just slows you down I could add a couple of hours to your workload where's by by refining this yeah you know, there's plenty of analogies out there like the you know how iTunes works in terms of you being able to find a particular album or particular song very easy fantastic but try to do that with a physical Set of you know vinyl LPs if you're that way inclined, or CDs. Um, you know, you it could take you quite a while if you haven't got a very organised um, shelving or classification system.
0: Yeah, and I think that goes back to my point that if we looked at that as the first step, the other challenge is is that you know my other concern is is that you know you look at ISO 19650 now, and uh, there are a number of deliverables or information requirements that clients. Need to stipulate if they choose to adopt that component of the of the standard, and the biggest problem I end up facing is that we're not going to actually achieve much efficiency in industry. A client might achieve efficiency uh, because they have the same document naming strategy across all of their sites. Hopefully, you know that'd be a great first step. Yeah, but imagine it actually being in a position where they actually there's an Australian-based standard for how we name our documents then you end up with a scenario where we have the simplicity of finding this information because it becomes as simple as the concept that you raised. And I think that's a, the, probably one of the best points I could take out of what we've talked about right now is the ability to find a song or an album through iTunes because of the classification systems that they're using. Now imagine that approach for a client to be able to apply that to every single document that relates to their built asset, you know, and that as a starting point. I think should be where everyone should be at. And, you know, it, it, it's probably a negative where, you know, at the moment through my business skewed, I'm looking to try and help people possibly identify their, their needs and, and essentially I'm saying to people, you know, that's it costs me time and money to develop these processes for you and but there's waste, you know. If I'm doing that for every single client, then that's essentially waste that's been created in industry. Yes, it's keeping consultancies uh, can, moving forward, but the reality of it is, is that it actually becomes waste because the client's investing in something that otherwise could just be a standard across the approach across yeah. the country, and then we move forward because ev- and then all the dev- delivery teams within industry, you know, from your consultants to your subcontractors to your contractors, can all have their processes and templates all set up ready to go, aligning with that standard, and essentially all they're looking to change is you know volumes because of the client-specific volume naming conventions or or changing the site or the project name based upon that actual project, which isn't that hard to do.
1: Yep, exactly. And I mean, it ultimately, at some point, you'd be able to then use that information to create an asset database or, uh, you know, w- whether it be model or, or just 2D or just, um, you know, schedule. So quickly be able to do that just with the naming conventional, classification, or application, or all those things that we all know. But I, I think, it, yeah, going back to the original point about, um, you know, crawling before you walk. I think that's it's something that everyone's in the industry is completely familiar with. Um, it's just a question of standardizing it across across all disciplines and, and 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 across agencies at least, and it would would really produce great benefits. I think. So maybe
0: today, um, we'll we'll just make a statement that that's what we recommend. That that we just should just say today, as of today, that's going to be the standard. And, uh, and we find a way. No, but seriously, it'd be interesting because. You imagine that, that well, mind you, that would probably upset a lot of BIM consulting practices across the country. Absolutely. Yeah. But but the reality of it is is that if that's one less item that a client needs to consider and it gets rolled out as part of Natspec, right, because Natspec is the, the national um, specification system yeah. and we just go, well, I know, you know, talking to Neil Greenstreet and, and Richard Choi about Natspec's position on uh, classification systems and they took the back seat. Because they said, "Well, we're not we're not in a position to provide advisory on this. We just respond to industry, yep. which is which is a fair and reasonable position for a national specification system to take." But um, let's just put put the hand up and go right. This is what we think is an approach for the country, <laughs> and then and then and then put it out there. Now, imagine imagine the thing is like Natspec, right? Has their traditional um, specification systems, right, yep. in terms of their section trade sections There's a trade based specification or a trade-based, performance-based specification, if we want to be more clear. Mm-hmm. Imagine we have a, a specification system or, or maybe a trade within there or a section within the specification that people could choose to adopt as a default position, Yep, and that could be based upon that standard. Or then we turn around and then the other answer is is that, well, as a, if a client's uh, more informed or a client that would like to have a specific system to meet their own requirements – Maybe that's what we do. Maybe that's maybe that's the outcome of today. That <laughs> I go out, go to um, Richard and Neil and say, guys, I want to. I'll write a, a, a trade section for NatSpec and put it in there, and people can choose to either adopt it or not. Yep, yep. And that kind of follows onto my next kind of idea I have in my head. And and you know, as we we're talking about, it's always about overcomplication, right? So we're pushing too much change onto people right now and overcomplicating it, and essentially creating fear in people and why they're not going to want to move forward. Yep. And a number of conversations I have with people of late is in terms of trying to explain the concepts of BIM and, and maybe the actual answer is, is that we actually need to take a step back and let's forget about the model component, right? Because I think that that is one of the other key areas that a lot of people get fixated on. You know, like you the one thing that I liked that you talked about was the digital twin thing. I was in an event the other day and a young person was explaining Explaining to me, oh, you know, this project's going to be delivered as a digital twin, and I said, "So, what sensors are being installed?" No, it's just it's connected to the the it's connected to the FM system. Well, I said it's not a digital twin. So once again, we're in a situation where new terminology gets brought out. You know, the challenges you have with the likes of uh, of people that are misinformed and providing and saying misinformation, which it really upsets me because then it gets it adds to the confusion, right? And people get all freaked out because they think, oh, I'm going to deliver this outcome. But, you know, we're near that. Yep. So let's take them all out. Let's just throw that away for a second. And this kind of comes back to a scenario where, you know, you've got your asset owners, right? And they're currently paying consultants to deliver or produce documentation. Well, let's just say produce information. Now, that information that is being produced is actually um, the purpose of that information is actually full construction, Yep. Okay, so a consultant is producing information that a um a builder or a subcontractor can understand clearly, yep, and then build a building. Yep. So the information they're producing is suitable for that one purpose. It's not suitable really for any other purposes. They haven't been engaged by a client to say, "Well, I'd like you to produce this specific plan or output" So that when I um, manage my facility, I know the square metre of this room or, you know, something that's specific to the operations of the building. You know, like maybe I'd like a, a room number plan, for example, a plan with just the room numbers on it so that I can identify when I walk around the site. Yeah. You know, like yeah. it's nine. you know, there are some developers that will turn around and say, you know, I'd like um, a marketing plan so I can put my um, apartments out to market and sell them, right? That's typically the, the most yeah. kind of yeah. client – Sided deliverable that we get. So the first problem we actually have in industry is that clients are just paying consultants to deliver information that's relevant to the builder.
1: Well, and and often, like you're saying, I think that's interesting. I always have this view that there's a set of information which may take. Ideally, it's in the form of a a data-rich model or model with linked data, because when I put my client goggles on and I'm let's say I'm a developer, the kind of information that I want is something that I can use or repurpose, ideally not repurpose, just push out to my, my clients, which are purchasers. So it's it's slimmed down, it's cleaned up information, it's rendered images, it's square meters, all you know, all done in, in a form that that's palatable to me and, and something that I can put out in the open marketplace. Yeah. Uh, so what I'm seeing is it's essentially what we're trying to do is communicate with each other with this very complicated and overlay technical information. So how do we do it? in a way that, that that gets rid of that complexity and, and that everyone's absolutely clear because the number of times I've seen significant issues on projects because of this lack of clear communication. So whether it be a, a poorly documented element or there's been a complete misunderstanding uh, around you know what what the intent was um, and I, I guess that's what we're trying to eliminate in, in this more refined and more modern way of just sharing information and, and I think the other thing is it's – Previously, been seen as a bit of a flow in one direction only. Ideally, you know, with the way I see the future of a collaborative team working is that you do have this ability to be flexible, agile, and flow information flowing in in, in, in in both directions. But you know valid, you know, ver- verified information that everyone can rely on to do whatever they need to do with that information.
0: Yeah, and but the thing is, it's still at this point in time so heavily focused on. Uh, the contractor, in terms of the contractor yeah. doing his job. And, you know, we're well aware of, you know, the process of design and documentation and construction is only, you know, on most projects, two to three, four years maybe, and then you got an asset for 50. Yeah. And I think the other challenge that we're seeing is that, you know, kind of once again the the asset owner relying on the consultant team or even a project manager, someone someone outside, a specialist third party, right, to document the information that's supposed to be delivered at the completion of the project. Yeah. On every project that I'd ever worked on, it was always using that spec, right? And and that spec has a generic set of deliverable requirements within their specification system that the contractor and their subcontracting team compile and put together. And and I can honestly put my hand on my heart and say, you know what? I've relied on that over my 16-17 year career at Fulton Trotter for what they delivered clients. Now personally, what, that, what I, that means is a deliverable. That means that I've seen on the myriad of different projects I've worked on, builders interpreting those requirements and that text and that outcome and those output requirements from the NAT Spec Spec and essentially just taking that and then and interpreting what it is and then delivering an outcome. Yeah. Every time it's different.
1: Well, we've seen, I don't know if you saw that Four Corners program last week, you know, and I think this is one of the – Repercussions of all that is exactly the, the situation we see in a lot of these apartment buildings around the country. How that's been interpreted, but how, more importantly, how's it been documented? And yeah. the, what do the records look like, and and what does that mean to the for the for the asset owner? You know, whether it be the flat owner or the or, or the developer.
0: Now, now I have to I have to put my hand up as well and say I'm not critiquing NatSpec in any way um, about that because you know in the end they're a national specification they have to put a very generic. Um, thing on the table but knowing what I know now from my perspective I think you know how how good would it be to actually strengthen up that core deliverable requirement um, in that spec as a starting point once again similar to our naming naming strategies that we talk about let's have a naming strategy let's um, up spec um, that spec's um, default requirements to even be and this is another thing that I struggle with is that you know, Contractors um, will deliver at the end of the project essentially a set of scanned uh, PDFs from subcontractors, and it becomes a non even non-text searchable PDF. Yep. You know, step one would be maybe a structure to what that but that output is, and the and the information that's needed as a minimum for each of these items in terms of what assets are delivered, uh, and then making it can still be a PDF maybe you know, yeah, and uh, just has to be text searchable. Mm-hmm. So if you do that then it, it means that if it's text searchable, it means that at least someone can open the PDF and control F and Agreed. and go searching for it. But, you know, at the moment, you know, it's just what happens. You know, it, industry still just does this whole outcome where they're just relying on, on generic information to do it. But if you set a line in the sand where you go, this is a base minimum requirement for a standard uh, maintenance manual. Yep. Then it gives a starting point once again industry to move forward and and then what that does is it provides consistency because the biggest problem i feel is is that i think that people are just basically saying bim is the answer to everything yep. whereas we actually have to think about it in a different light and the actual real answer is is that bim is a, a process that responds to need rather than trying to being a solution to nothing
1: yep I just want to take you up on a couple of points you made there around the NatSpec thing. I think you know again it, it points straight back to the other just point we made around classification and and being able to find information. So if you look at that 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 problem that we've seen with around apartment buildings, uh, and if someone has taken a, um, a performance specification based on NatSpec and I think it's 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 only correct that you enable in, in a DNC contract the contractor the opportunity to to you know maybe um, seek alternatives seek cost effective keep the competition going because that brings value to the, the end user you know so you there's there's no ways you want to stop that what you do want to do though is make sure that we've got a verified source and a traceability of that information so it's the same whether it's a physical product whether it be a panel that's maybe got some you know some asbestos in it combustibility, combustible perhaps um whether it's that or you know it's just trying to find that particular um, maintenance manual to say that something needs to be cleaned every three years or whatever it might be uh, and, and i'm having a little bit of a stab in the dark here but judging by the comments that i heard at a recent uh, industry uh, get together around the records um agencies apparently only get something like i think it was 15% did the 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 ladies say that they can rely on in terms of as as constructed proper information records you know so so doing that and i imagine and that's the the public sector what the private yeah. sector might look like um would be fascinating to know those blocks of units Where's that documentation, and how quickly and easy would it be to, to do a traceability exercise on whether something is compliant with what it needed to be compliant with, you know, and when does it need to be maintained? And I mean, obviously, there's there's frameworks in there, but the visibility of that stuff, I think, is a little bit lacking.
0: Yeah, I think that's true. Imagine imagine it was actually more accessible, you know, because I know how long it takes seems to it takes to get um, contractors to deliver their maintenance manuals. You get them nearly at the, end of the defects period, which is after twelve months, yeah, if you're lucky. Imagine there was actually a clean uh, maintenance protocol for for preventative maintenance, right? So, you know, number number one of the things that I do remember seeing a lot of is that a lot of clients actually struggle to maintain their assets and maybe it's not because of the fact that they don't have the funds to do so. It's just that they're not aware. It's not kind of black and white in front of them as to how they actually should do it. Yeah. I don't know if we've actually solved any problems talking today. <laughs>
1: <laughs> Created some more perhaps.
0: Well, it's it's more about, I guess, trying to raise awareness and maybe starting a, a bigger discussion about it. You know, it, it might be that, uh, you know, I, th- I think that there could be some concepts that could, put, could be put forward in regards to having a, a standard base point for, um, you know, document numbering or document naming strategies that could be adopted across Australia. I think that would be a great start. Yeah. Uh, and then, second of all, taking the other step of uh maybe another option also could be you know investigating the the benefits of um, maybe just even having a a more prescriptive uh requirement for maintenance manuals you know just those two kind of things might be the first steps in terms of crawling people yep. within within a, within the bim environment and you know i I know there's clients that that we that I worked with uh at Fulton Trotter that you know, they have a lot of assets and they're struggling to find the documents. You know, they work with numerous consultants and numerous contractors across all of their built assets and I just imagine the value that having a naming strategy for their documents would have and a single point of, of access in terms yep. of a document management system or, or a CDE uh, would mean to their business, Yep. you know, in terms of just the one that one step. Forgetting about models and this is the whole thing and I think that's the biggest problem we have is where everyone's kind of getting too excited about the future and the whole potential of what things are and not actually thinking about what the real needs are of a a user or or a person that's actually in that role. And that's where I think the simplicity of Chris Linnings' outcome at the Sydney Opera House of just going, well, I'm going to maintain all these existing systems because that's what people need to do their job and I'm going to have an overlay. And, he, and that's how he kind of looked at it as the future., Yep. but the key thing to take away from his whole implementation was is that essentially he set up an archive with all of the drawings named appropriately, and I think that yep. that, that should be maybe the, the the methodology of communicating with with asset owners as a starting point from now on. It's actually like, well let's let's look at this, and step one is getting you to to actually being able to find information more appropriately. And then step two, you know, and it might be a few years down the track is, well, let's create um, a schedule. You know, they might the, the consultant team might be building a model but maybe there's a schedule that sits in front of it because I think the other thing that we're creating, a rod for um, clients' own backs right here, right now, yep. is it's all good and well having a, a methodology for delivering models when it's built. What happens when they maintain their building? The yep. cost of actually getting in there – and updating these models in, in, a, in an appropriate manner. You know, it 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 just, it just kills me to think of the expense and the burden we're actually adding to clients by saying let's do this whole thing. You know, maybe it's a, a, a game, a, not a game, but it, maybe it's an outcome where you have little snippets. You know, it's like, well, this was the built model at this point in time and similar to when you get a land surveyor, right? Like the amount of projects you work with land surveyors and you go, I'd like you to survey just this section of this site. Yep. Because I've identified, I know there's changes since the last one, and then you never pay them to to provide a, a integrated survey again because it costs too much, right? So, yeah. a solution whereby you get the constructed model and then change snippets, that then when you go to do a major project where it's applicable, the consultant that needs to do that work can then join that whole and integrate that model once again, but it can all be controlled and maintenance through through a spreadsheet or a database. Backing to a user interface, which means that a person can actually integrate, integrate, or inter- access it. I,
1: I agree. I think it's what we all—all all this stems from—is reliability of information. So, yeah. if you know, we don't want to end up with the dial before you dig solution, which is, you know, he has all this information but it's there's no warranty, you know. So I think like you're making the analogy there of a s- surveying, you know, going to survey and I think we all know that plenty of these things have been surveyed probably 10, 20 times <laughs> um, and it's all because no one can rely on the information and, and the reason they can't rely on the information is basically because there's no system or framework in place or classification like we're just pointing out then is that if someone had – Whoever done that survey, whether it be a paper based even or a digital format or whatever it might be, that there's a degree of reliability put to that that survey information and it's stored that it's readily accessible and someone's prepared to, to warrant its you know, will make warrant its uh, its its reliability, that will, you know, I think unlock this. So I, I take the point about people keep saying this to me as well about, you know, how expensive it is to maintain the model. Well, Try the, try doing the opposite. Try not maintaining the, the the information, and then say, okay, we're going to make some changes, and then you've got yeah. to spend a fortune trying to dig up all this resurvey, get all this information. Um, I think we've got to be flexible about this while we're building all this. But there's no shortcut to to providing this better state. Where I think, I mean, I think this all also interestingly stems back from a, another interesting human int- interest. I think is that we're all interested in the new something you know, new and flashy, and once something's been built, people aren't interested anymore. Maintaining something's not as glamorous and as interesting, but I think the sad thing is that that's why we see so many great buildings decline and become eventually unusable, whereas if they had been maintained in, in predict, you know, through predictive maintenance, we a far better outcome. You'd have assets that the state could, could rely on and, and use more effectively um, and the same with the public sector. There's some, been some, there's some really good examples. Well, the Opera House is a phenomenal example. Yeah. You know, it's just a credit to them that they have maintained it. I mean, it's obviously been a very expensive asset to maintain, but we can't conceive of anything different. And that's probably the reason why they have actually gone ahead and done and invested in all of this stuff. And it would be great to see that happening elsewhere.
0: I think they've invested so much in the Opera House because of the value it brings to the country's economy. And I think the same approach needs to be taken with all the assets that we have here, it's in terms of actually identifying the value it brings rather than what it costs to maintain. And, you know, that's the that's the biggest challenge I think is about it all. But um, as I said earlier, Don, I don't think that we've solved any of the world's problems today, but at least I think it's hopefully going to um, at least start possibly some debate across industry. I think that's kind of what I want to try and do. I want to start some conversation in around this and and hopefully kind of find ways in which we can help asset owners and, and representatives within that environment to actually move forward on here because I think that the challenges that we're seeing is that because of this kind of strategic pitch that people's putting are putting to, to clients or asset owners that we're essentially seeing this kind of a, a, almost like kind of paralysis across industry which yep. is killing it, right? Yep. And it's actually preventing us from moving forward. So Don's been talking to me about potentially putting together a workshop for the Future Infrastructure Summit that's going to be held in October in Brisbane and Melbourne. And uh, hopefully I'll be able to put some uh, meat on the bones and in that workshop to try and possibly put forward strategies that are actually of value and of use to asset owners that are actually looking to make these steps forward and actually make them in a logical manner rather than, than going forward into, uh, I guess, jumping too far in like, and trying to help people get the steps up. And I think that's the most important thing moving forward. But Don, thanks very much for visiting me today and taking the time to talk about this topic Based upon our conversation, I think you can see how much um, I think this topic is of high value and it's definitely a valid one that deserves more discussion in and around industry. And I think that the biggest problem is I think it's it's demonstrated, I guess what we can see in industry is how we're actually failing to gain traction because of the fact that we're trying to push um, too hard people, trying to push people to walk before they can crawl. I have to put this one on you as well and one that you probably weren't going to be aware of. But uh, one final question, one that I ask everyone that I have on here. And what does BIM mean for you? Uh,
1: BIM, in short, means uh, a smarter way of of being able to take, you know, the creative minds of architects and engineers uh, and deliver assets for um, our community. So uh, to me, it's just the smart way of doing things, you know. It's just more effective management of that information. Uh, I, I still remember this, this poster of, you know, you might have seen the, 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 the different views of a swing. It's a famous um, old... Post uh, you know the architect's view or what it looks like and the the structural engineer's the client's view and 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 what the client really wanted was you know just a tire hanging from some rope from a tree so it's it's a it's a fascinating i suppose analogy of our, of our industry and how it all works but that's why I'm a big fan of BIM it it, it kind of really manages to get rid of quite a few of the grey areas for everyone. Um, the model, the, the ability to see it more realistically, everyone understands three dimensions. It's a physical representation. The ability to have that information to, at, at hand to tell someone whether you know what that material is or that finish is or the spatial information or any of that, it's, it's, it's a phenomenal tool. But going back to your original point, I do think that in some ways we, we're trying to run before we can walk. And that's probably as a result of this some really great, people, particularly in Australia, that is driving this and, they, you know, they're very smart people.
0: Passionate. And yeah. passionate yeah. And,
1: and, and it's driving, you know, it's driving our industry and they need to be their help driver but I think we've also got to, we've got to, we've got to unpack this for, for other people that are maybe not as technically involved in this stuff and, and help them understand and see the benefits of this. Uh, and, but, but I totally agree we need to start at, at level one and, and, and get some good solid stuff happening there and then and then it won't be long before we'll be in level two and, and three and, and beyond.
0: Yes, the next industry, but Don, thanks again for your time. For more information on Don, please head to our website for further reading. I look forward to sharing our next podcast in a fortnight's time. Until then, good luck with your digital transition. For more information, or if you'd like to continue the discussion in the comments section, head over to our website, thedigitaltransition.com. Remember to subscribe so you don't miss out on our future podcasts. digital transition.